0: Welcome back to A Story of Us, our Humanity, History, and Department, the podcast hosted entirely by the graduate students of anthropology at The Ohio State University, and in collaboration with our partners at the American Anthropological Association. We're here today uh, to chat some more about late childhood, so pretty much everything after weaning, and today is a really exciting day for us because we have two members of the anthropology department. So do you guys want to go ahead and introduce yourselves?
1: Hi, I'm Jesse Goliath. I'm currently a PhD student at Ohio State in anthropology. I'm a PhD candidate, so I'm almost completed with my dissertation research. I also earned my master's at Ohio State as well, so I've been with the program for quite some time. What I do specifically, I'm a skeletal biologist by trade. Um, my areas focus in bioarchaeology, forensics, but pretty much skeletal biologist is my general title. I do also work with anatomy as well.
2: Hi, I'm Giuseppe Vercellotti. I am adjunct faculty here at Ohio State. I got my PhD here in 2012 in biological anthropology. My research focuses on growth and development. I'm interested in longitudinal growth, so stature and body proportions and everything that happens to your body, basically since you're a child to adulthood. And I've been studying this both in archaeological populations in Italy and Poland, specifically, as well as in living populations from South America. And I'm excited to be here today talking about this stuff. While Giuseppe's research focuses on whole bone, mine is specifically
1: looking at subchondral bone of a proximal tibia. So it's a very narrowed focus in terms of scale. Subchondral bone is a type of bone that underlines joint surfaces. It's not just cortical. It's not just trabecular. It's a little bit of both in its architecture, its structure. And what it does is it helps to protect the joint as it's, lo- as it's developing, and also the joint as a joint system. And so the co- subchondral bone works in part with the cartilage to make sure that the joint moves flexibly, but also has the strength to, to deal with increasing loads. I'm looking using micro CT or computer tomography, looking at the structure of the bone and specifically how that subchondral bone changes with time. We start to see this development early on in utero or in the womb, but specifically looking at what region we focus in, probably around six to seven we start to see the epiphysis form, or the end of the bone, and how that actual, that bone interacts with the joints, and so how that actually changes and grows and develops in an archaeological population.
2: And I think what you do is really interesting because you're really trying to develop a baseline and understand what happens to the bone throughout growth which is what we try and do as well when we look at longitudinal growth, but then we're always dealing with issues of archeological samples and what disrupts growth and what not. So I think that it's interesting to see how you guys use these very finite methods to develop an understanding of the processes underlying growth in general.
1: And I think that's really a concern for both clinical, the medical side, as well as in anthropology, that really there are no baselines established for a lot of these different skeletal processes. So in anthropology, we're usually looking at the remains, the whatever left of the establish, usually the end product. So we've seen this as an adult form. This person died of what kind of disease, what kind of joint disease they may have had, but really not understanding those basic mechanical processes at first.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's something that we deal with when we're looking at Uh, longitudinal growth as well, we tend to see the, the outcome of growth in general And I think it's very important for us to understand what happens to the body at different times. And one thing that is very interesting about growth, I think, is that it's heterochronous. So different parts of the body grow at different rates at different times. So based on the final outcomes, you can actually sort of reconstruct life histories for individuals in the past. And of course, when you're looking at archaeological populations, that's quite interesting, I think. Yeah, and I think that's really interesting about
1: children in general, that they really offer us some earlier snapshots of what actually may have happened to a population, what kind of early maybe systemic diseases may have happened, any kind of early traumas, weaning, nutrition, all those really kind of basic building blocks for growth. <laughs>
2: Now, when you look at children in archaeological record for the kind of research you do, do you find there to be limitations related to, you know, everything that we typically do with skeletal assemblages, so representativeness? Oh, why did they die? You know, What is the, the frailty underlying the fact that they're dead? Within bioarchaeology, paleopathology, we talk about osteological paradox, and that's one of the interesting questions to me is do these children really represent these populations that we're studying. So typically
1: when we're looking at what we define as the osteological paradox, we are trying to answer questions about a population, looking at only fragments of that population that remain in a skeletal assemblage. We're not getting all the possible people who may have lived during that time in this culture. We're getting only a small sample of the people that lived during that culture. You're typically seeing those who may have died early on, those who have died from Trauma, warfare, some kind of malnutrition. So when we're seeing children that typically died, there's for a reason for that. Typically children, for the most part, if they're healthy and have good nutrition, they should uh, grow and develop into adults quite normally.
2: Right. I, I think that from my perspective as well, it's interesting when we study skeletal remains, how children who are dead in the record are those individuals who never completed growth. So a question is... Are there growth outcomes and growth patterns that they express? Are those normal? Are those real, or are these just individuals who didn't make it? I actually explored that by comparing archaeological populations with living populations, because you don't really know. There are a lot of questions that you cannot ask of dead people. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) That's something that I think we need to be mindful of when we look at growth and human growth in archaeological records specifically.
1: And that's something that really points back to the scale in a lot of the research I do because it's focusing on the microstructure of bone. so understanding the differences between cortical and trabecular bone, but that microstructure, the scale you're looking at, is affected by other factors other than the whole bones. Microstructure can be defined in a lot of different ways, but it's ultimately the basic form or architecture of bone. So that could be including things like the osteon or the bone cells themselves typically when we're looking at, is affected by other factors other than the whole bone. So typically when we're looking at nutrition, uh, specifically malnutrition, we don't see that as much in the microstructure, but we do see Mm -hmm. that in the whole bone aspect. And so that's one way to kind of alleviate that osteological paradox is looking at smaller scales of observation.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that when you're looking at the the whole skeleton instead, you have to really be mindful of all of the different um, really biocultural correlates of growth. So we can understand if what you're seeing is the result of malnutrition or disease or a combination of both, yeah. or maybe something else entirely.
1: If we establish these early microstructure baselines, we can then move up scales into incorporating how that affects not only the tissue, but also the whole bone structure. And so what my research is kind of looking at is what specifically happens to the trabecular bone as a child is learning to walk, as they're learning to mm-hmm. uh, develop an adult form of kinematics or movement. When we describe joint kinematics, it's all of the forces that affect how the joint moves and specifically what's happening to that trabecular bone in terms of its overall shape, its size, thickness, how it's moving across the actual bone itself. So specifically in the proximal tibia, how's the condyles affected? How's that region affected by the increasing weight and also the joint load placed on that bone?
2: Okay, so catch-up growth is a process uh, by which the growing body recovers from earlier growth insults, so that the terminal growth outcomes don't necessarily show uh, stunting or delay of growth. Do you think that catch-up growth has the potential to interfere with what you're looking at? It really
1: doesn't because of the scale I'm looking at, but it's something that we definitely need to take into account because catch-up growth is ultimately going to look at the ultimate adult configuration. So Mm -hmm. how that catch-up growth ultimately leads to adult stature is something that we need to take into
2: account. Right, because when you look at longitudinal growth, you really don't know if something like catch-up growth, which is an acceleration uh, or an extension of growth, uh, has happened. So what you see is just the terminal outcome, and you don't necessarily know if there have been stressors that have been, been recovered from or not. But on the scale of your, of your observations, you're probably not seeing that yeah, we're much. Yeah, not,
1: we're not really seeing much. And if there are issues in terms of disease or malnutrition, you're more likely to see that on a tissue level. Mm-hmm. And with the actual, with the trabeculae, they're either there or they're not. So, And explain what tissue level means is typically uh, when bone develops, you have aversion systems or actual layers of bone, these bone envelopes. And that bone envelope is made up of cortical and trabecular bone.
0: Why don't you guys give us a little bit of um, information about what your research can inform? So what kind of future directions are you hoping to go in? So for our listeners that aren't necessarily going into fields of bioarchaeology, what are your takeaway messages?
1: Sure. So a lot of the research I'm looking at bridges medical clinical research on joint disease and archaeological or biological anthropology research. So specifically with the bone, it's the bone that underlines joint surfaces, and in clinical research, there has been several correlations of several studies that looked at the changes in that bone ultimately affect how joint disease actually accelerates and or the onset of joint disease. So osteoarthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, a lot of that has to do with the subchondral bone and its changes in morphology. So without having to actually CT small children, living children, <laughs> they, they look to us to look at these skeletal assemblages to see what are the actual baseline changes in trabecular bone, especially during growth and development.
0: This is just something that me, as not a bioarchaeologist, has always been really interested in. You kind of touched on the osteological paradox. So when you do find children in grave sites or wherever, they have something has happened that is preventing them from reaching um, sexual Five. maturity or adulthood, right? <laughs> so, like, yeah, exactly. Continuing on, so how do you kind of navigate that that area?
2: One of the biggest issues that I have always had with that is that we don't necessarily know if it's likely to happen. So one thing that I actually did was to explore this idea and test the hypothesis that different life conditions would lead to different growth outcomes and see if I could relate those to quote-unquote paradoxical conditions. And what we found was that Really, terminal growth outcomes are really dependent on the specific contingent conditions that somebody experienced. So you might have tall stature as a result of high selection, which is what the astrological paradox would predict. But you may also have tall stature of a population because you don't have a selection. So lower stress allows everybody to express their full genetic potential. So I think that a very interesting question when working with uh, bio populations is that of looking at the specific context that this population lived in so that we might be able to inform our studies of growth in the past specifically. We touched on catch-up growth earlier. Ketchup growth might give you very tall stature even if you have high selection. So we really need to understand all of the different factors from stress and disease and nutrition and malnutrition and kind of catch-up growth you might have so that we can really reconstruct life in the past realistically and uh, with, I think, a grain of salt. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah, and really trying to understand when you are making these observations, what level – of analysis, are you looking at what are the factors that are going to affect the level or scale that you're focusing on? So a lot of the research my area focuses on is mostly looking at metabolic factors. (laughs) So bone marrow, blood, red blood cells. So those things are going to affect when you're looking at the scale, trabecular scale. Also in general, it's important to look at the population demographics. So for example, in my research, I'm looking at the Norris Farms Yoda population. And sadly, due to warfare, we have a lot of juvenile and children in this assemblage. And because of that, we are ultimately able to look at a large number of children, how they may have lived in this context. Some of it could be due to warfare. Some of it is due to malnutrition or stress. But really, at the scale I'm looking at, metabolic really is the m- most important aspect to look consider.
2: Yeah, one thing that you know I keep thinking of as we're having this conversation is that when you study growth, and in general, I think in anthropology, it's so important to combine all these different perspectives. So you mentioned, you know, metabolic um, studies and you know your micro CT skeletal level analysis, as well as you know contextual analysis, biocultural perspectives. For instance, that's why I had to go and work with living people because right. there are so many things that you know you can learn that you wouldn't learn otherwise. So I think that the need for a, a multidisciplinary approach it's really paramount when you want to study something as complex as growth. Yeah. And it really
1: does take the research of not only skeletal biologists and bioarchaeologists, but also medical clinicians, as well as a human biologists, anatomists. And really a lot of that is they're asking different questions mm-hmm. that may help us all understand more about growth and development. So,
2: And also the implications, I think, are much broader when you have this kind of multidisciplinary approach. And we know that poor growth outcomes are correlated with several diseases of aging, several conditions, including, you know, heart disease, diabetes, and whatnot. So being able to put everything in that kind of broader perspective, I think really informs what we do, and how our research can be helpful to the world. Uh,
1: Something of interest, a lot of people always ask, why do we study children? Or why are children really the focus of our research? And Pretty much children are very flexible. They they bounce well with their environment. They are pretty flexible to the situations around them. And typically children after age five, they're pretty much invulnerable. They, unless they had early weaning or issues of growth and development, typically genetic, past five, if they're given a healthy diet and they have some activity, they're pretty stable. We don't really see a lot of little kids dying of things unless it's major diseases. So. So it's it's a nice kind of research to look at and incorporate. We always look at the adult. There's stages that lead up to that adult form, and those earlier stages really may give us a clear picture of how people may have lived as they grow and develop.
2: Yeah, and I think it's actually very important to have both pieces to the puzzle. So look at children and compare them to adults. And, of course, depending on what the specific research question, you might have different yeah. uh, ways to frame that. But it's important to be mindful of the specific issues with each sample and what they can contribute to our broader understanding.
0: So thank you, Jesse and Dr. Giuseppe Vertolati. That was a really fascinating conversation. I know that I learned a lot. Exciting to have you both here. So, to all of our listeners out there, I hope you walked away with something cool and you can join us next time. But in the meantime, you can subscribe to our podcast, like us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all at A Story of Us, OSU. Or you could check out our website, anthropology.osu.edu. Please leave us a review of the show on iTunes so the more reviews we have, the easier it is for people to find us and like us and enjoy us, just as much as you do. So as always, this podcast is produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association and the graduate students at the Department of Anthropology at Ohio State. We hope you join us next time as we continue to explore a story of us, our humanity, history and department.